Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. The flagship rewards credit card offers three times points on all travel purchases and two times points on everything else. Three times the points on travel means getting rewarded while road tripping or even commuting to work. You'll also get other benefits like a statement credit for global entry and TSA pre-check of up to $100, 24-7 member support, and access to Navy Federal's online shopping center. Check out NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply now. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org slash flagship. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming, Dell Cinema Technology makes whatever you love to watch even better. Call 800 by dell to learn more or visit dell.com slash dellcinema. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the new Amazon series Homecoming, directed by Sam Esmail, the creator of Mr. Robot, based on the critically acclaimed podcast by Eli Horowitz and Micah Bloomberg. Homecoming stars Julia Roberts as Heidi Bergman, a caseworker at the Homecoming Transitional Support Center. But four years after starting a new life, Heidi is faced with questions about why she left the facility. And she realizes there's a deeper story beyond the one she's telling herself. Don't miss Homecoming. Stream it now only on Amazon Prime Video. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, sitting over some aged meat at Fat Morgan's, it's Andy Greenwald! Hey, that was my favorite little scene. Yeah, that was my guy Tim that. from Justified, just hanging out. Was that really? Yeah. I don't know what, what he was doing in there. I think that he is the boyfriend of the Frankie Shaw waitress character. Okay. Now, this is We're I talking about that. Homecoming, obviously. This is not a spoiler. Do you know how I know that? How? Because I was talking about that scene just now in the edit bay, and my post producer for Briar Patch was the post producer on Homecoming, and he said, "Oh, do you mean her boyfriend?" Wait, in real life so, or just the characters? No, no, the character. Okay, the character. yeah, that's in what real I life, Frankie is happily married. My okay, God, Chris, don't. This isn't a salacious podcast. No, it is. It isn't. But we are going to deal in some salacious Breaking Bad and Star Wars rumors. Not even rumors. This is hardcore oh, reports. Boy, you know. Guys, first of all, thank you all, as always, for listening. Chris, thank you, as always, for listening to me. I just feel like, you know, it's been tough. I've been away from you. I'm in Culver City. I don't see daylight anymore. And right before we record, we get just juicy Breaking Bad and Star Wars news. This is big for our brand. Did right? you wake up on Wednesday us. morning in America and say to yourself, I need a Cassian Andor prequel? No, but I have been thinking that one of the most undervalued assets in entertainment is the prequel to the prequel. Oh, like yeah, why that's do right. things like Chris, like you remember when you used to do Hollywood guy and yeah. you just tent your fingers. I love this story, but could you go and earlier? I, I, I think the note is, but why does time always have to move forward? Yeah. You know, like let's just keep rewinding the tape. What if there was Great. more right. than one rogue? <laughs> this is no. I just think it's more like Rogue Point Five. We're being, you know what I mean? in case I know nobody knows what we're talking about today. Disney head honcho, COO, Chairman Bob Iger announced that Lucasfilm. This is from StarWars.com. Lucasfilm is in development on a second Star Wars live action series for Disney Plus, the company's new direct-to-consumer streaming service, which doesn't exist yet. The first one, obviously, being John Favreau's The Mandalorian 
which I, th- I think is like a kind of Buick you can get too. Uh, the series, which will go into production next year, follows the adventures of rebel spy Cassian Andor during the formative years of the Rebellion and prior to the events of Rogue One, a Star Wars story. I'll tell you what, it couldn't be about Cassian Andor and take place after Rogue One. <laughs> Am I right? Do you know what the most depressing movie in Star Wars continuity would be? It would be Rogue Two. <laughs> Rogue Two is just a lot of like charred body parts floating in space. It's just a guy with space. a broom. <laughs> this is dark. Rap. This is dark. It's kind of a dark time. Wait, I want to talk about this, Chris. If only I had a microphone in front of me to talk about this. You Sorry, you want to set the stage. No, I was just going to say that, that, again, just like we were really tantalized by the logline for Rogue One and, and somewhat delivered, I think that uh, you and I both really liked parts of it and there were parts of it that made no sense. Um, the the logline for, for, for the Cassian Andor show is a rousing spy thriller which will explore tales filled with espionage and daring missions to restore hope to the galaxy in the grip of a ruthless empire. Well, look, I think the first question to to ask is one that is on the lips of every watch listener. This doesn't, what does this mean for Narcos season five, right? Because your man Cassian Andor is currently fighting the rise of the Mexican cartels. No, he's not fighting anything, man. He's aiding and abetting. Oh, is he, is he on that side of the fence? He's the drug lord and Michael Pena is the DEA agent. What? Yes. Wow. Okay, so I haven't seen any of this yet. Okay, so I guess I guess we know where this is going. All right. So there are there are your narco spoilers, guys. Following up, I'm of two minds about this because on the one hand, there's way too much Star Wars. We don't need multiple live action Star Wars series. I'm not even sure if I need Disney Plus in my life. If we're being completely honest, which frankly what you, we should be. Don't you have a straight up like Mary Poppins addict? In your house? I Okay, a couple things. Because I'm remote right now, I thought you said a Mary Poppins attic, which suggested there was an extra floor of my house. <laughs> yeah, just all of umbrellas. No, I'm saying, covered in don't you have, bags. like, whatever Chris Rock was in New Jack City, that's what the kids in yeah. your house are for Mary Poppins. Oh, look, me too. You have to understand. But that doesn't mean I need a streaming service with a live-action story about the you know, chimney sweeps. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm not against Disney content. I will be first in line for Mary Poppins Returns. What I'm saying is I don't need 10 episodes a season of Mary Poppins Begins. However, Chris, however, if you were to make a Star Wars live action series, (laughs) this is the one that I would choose. Okay. This, this is the one that I would choose over the Mandalorian, which sounds like a dude who plays like a, a, a medieval instrument in the corner of a tavern where elves drink flagons of ale. That sounds like this somebody, is, a Mandalorian is a guy that Jeff Tweedy adds to Wilco on like the ninth album. <laughs> we got we to gotta get some Mandalorian on this one. <laughs> Move over, Nels Klein. We need a Mandalorian. I think that I really like, look, we like Rogue One a lot. I really like Diego Luna's character in it. I like the idea because we haven't gotten, even in the Han Solo movie, we never got a Han Solo type character. And that's kind of, and this is the closest we've gotten. This dude just kind of does some shady stuff on the margins of the Empire. That's cool. That sounds fun. And it sounds more like a TV show in the traditional sense of a TV show in that it could even be less serialized, right? It could even be more like justified in the sense that it's a one character having some adventures, sometimes serious, sometimes not, but with standalone episodes along the way. 
that's appealing to me. Yeah, the interesting thing here is that Diego Luna's character, Cassie, in, in Rogue One, especially in the beginning of Rogue One, is essentially an assassin. I mean, he he does kill people in the name of the, the burgeoning rebellion. And so I'll be interested to see how dark this gets. Uh, obviously, with most of the Star Wars watching universe knowing his fate, it will also cast sort of a shadow on the events. I don't like starting things knowing where they're going to end up. I, I prefer, I mean, like, I think in something like Star Wars, so much of it is imaginative and so much of it is this fantastical exploration of myth and legend. So even if there has to be an arc to follow along with the hero's journey, I still feel like there's the initial attraction to that was this feeling of these new archetypes out in a new galaxy. And so to work within these constraints, which I think a lot of this IP stuff is doing, and we're going to talk in a second about the new chapter of Breaking Bad, uh, which is similarly sort of handcuffed to its its sort of family tree. But like with this, it's just, I, I do kind of wonder about the execution. You can't make too bright of a show out of a, a spy assassin who will eventually get nuked. Yeah, and I think that it's worth, well, it's also worth talking about how this is going to work. Like Star Wars has always been family-friendly entertainment, and it's often the more, more interesting parts of it. It's, it's Han shoots first, right? It's like they want it to be a little bit edgy, but it also has to be family-friendly, and how are they going to walk that line? It's worth considering that while they potentially could make a darker Star Wars movie, even, and they keep almost trying and then reverting it, this is going to be for the streaming service. And the, one of the interesting aspects of the streaming service that they announced called Disney+, Plus, and it's going to debut in late 2019, and we say streaming service, this is just another thing you're going to have to subscribe to if you want the content, yeah. and Disney's pulling its content from Netflix and other places in advance of this. It's apparently, and this is from the news releases, the, the press conferences today, and also um, I'm reading it from Joe Adalian, the, the expert um, TV reporter for Vulture, that unlike Netflix, the Disney Plus app or interface will actually be five kind of micro sites devoted to brands. There's going to be a Star Wars, I don't know, page or site, Marvel, Marvel Pixar, Disney, and then the outlier, Nat Geo, which I guess is a completely different demographic, but somehow in the corporate family. So what that means is if your kid is used to, you know, I say kid, you know, anywhere from five to 15 is used to, to grabbing the remote and going to Disney Plus and then now going to this, uh, you know, and, and checking out the Disney or Pixar content, they will also be accessing the Star Wars. They could easily access the Star Wars content, all of which is to say, your point is really well taken. It probably won't be a roguish assassin show. Well, you, or at least you, it won't be emphasis on the assassin. You touched on this, like this idea that they do at least tease this idea that they're going to make um, grittier Star Wars fare. And I think that a lot of these movies do start out with the best intentions. And to my mind, the only one that's kind of seen the project through from from uh, Soup to Nuts as like the vision of one of these directors is Last Jedi, which is also... Uh, the most controversial, probably, of the, mm -hmm. of the more recent Star Wars films. But they tried to make uh, Solo into a Lord and Miller gangster western, which Ron Howard had to come in and finish. They uh, Rogue One itself, had, it was infamously possibly taken over by t Tony Gilroy, but went through a lot of recutting no, and a lot of tonal no, shifts. We can say taken over. Yeah, and it went through a lot of tonal shifts. Um, you know, they were still rewriting elements of The Force Awakens when J.J. was still shooting it. I mean, there's like an entire other script with Luke's hand floating in space as the opening image that Mike Arndt wrote, right? So it, I, I think it's Star Wars, the latest iteration of Star Wars is always a work in progress. It'll be fascinating to watch whether or not they they tighten things up a little bit for the plus. 
you know, because you'd think that with the amount of money that they're spending on these movies, they'd be a little bit more uh, under control. But maybe, maybe the chaos is something that gives this this series energy. I don't know. Are you saying that Kathleen Kennedy has something in common with Bane? <laughs> I'm just trying to connect the dots here. You know, in retrospect, one of the I, I'm beginning to think that one of the most uh, one of the most unlikely things to have happened in um, major you know blockbuster entertainment in the last few years was Logan. Realizing now how hard it is for these brands, you know, that basically the maintenance of these brands underwrites these massive, massive corporations that Fox actually let James Mangold go crazy, you know, and make an adult Western as much as it was an adult Western. Similarly, you know, obviously that's been working for them with Deadpool as well. And that's been central to Fox's ability to kind of differentiate itself from Marvel with a different type of success, right? And how Sony has tried that strategy with Venom. Marvel has never really done that. You know, I think there was some thought that um, Marvel TV might do that with their Netflix series, which was certainly a little more I don't know if gritty is the word. I mean, there were, there were less aliens. But I think the thing to think about isn't just that Disney is traditionally a more family-friendly company than Fox. It's that Disney is thinking long-term of itself as a direct-to-consumer portal. Yes. Right? You couldn't, you couldn't make a Iron Man story that in which, you know, the Tony Stark is an alcoholic storyline, which is something that comic book fans really love. You couldn't do that as a side story and then knowing it would ultimately go onto a service like this and be up there right next to the more family-friendly movies. Yeah, but right? here's... So it, yeah, go ahead. You go ahead, finish. I'm happy to keep advocating for drunk Tony Stark, but please cut me off. Well, no, what's good about Logan, aside from Boyd Holbrook and his fake arm? It's the finality. <laughs> it's it's yes. the feeling that it, you're watching the unforgiven of a, of a superhero movie, that you're watching... Uh, a character reckoned with a life of violence, reckoned with all this guilt and regret, reckoned with this broken body and a broken mind, and try and find some sort of redemption, and ultimately find his redemption in his own in his own death. Now, even though nothing is ever really dead in a comic book movie or a comic book for that matter, that's something that isn't. It doesn't play into the idea of building out twenty five, thirty years of Star Wars content, and. I you know I'm I, I'm kind of interested to know who was the person and what was the idea that they were like Cassie and Andor is the thing that we need to kind of revive. Maybe it's just that they're like there's a lot to be done in the spy genre in this world, and we think that this is the best way to do it. But I think that this is going to be an interesting thing going forward, and we can talk about it with Breaking Bad now. Finality does matter. Finality is something that people fix their eyes on a point in the horizon in a story and are like, okay, we're moving towards something. And I, I think as television and movies collapse a little bit, that'll be something that we get into a lot more is the idea of, of are people fine with things just being never-ending and, and indefinite and oh, we can always bring this back or we can always turn the clock back 10 years to before this and how does yeah. you know how do these stories impact the stories to come later i mean let's we can start talking about breaking bad well, stuff now if you want I, I i do i do just want to say i think the best case scenario of the cash and andor thing is what you just said that someone was like boy that would be fun to make this sort of this type of story i think the truth is probably closer to this is a story that exists in the most fertile period of our pre-existing mythology because we don't have to make up new stuff. Do you think that there's it, just also like a business side thing where they had Diego Luna under contract? No, but I 
but I sh- I'm sure it's connected to the fact that they were able to get him under contract. You know okay. what I mean? Like yeah, they, I- they looked at their schedule and they looked at his schedule and they, they checked the, the average lifespan of Mexican drug lords and they were like, this is going to work out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. So moving to the other news, yes. um, which is this week news broke first that Vince Gilligan was writing and directing a movie for AMC in keeping with their, you know, really just this week revealed strategy of making movies based on their properties with the Rick Grimes Walking Dead movies. At first, it was unclear what this would be, although everyone assumed it would be Breaking Bad related. Foolishly, Chris, I was out in the field. I was out in the field learning things like a like a journalist, and I forgot during production <laughs> of Briar Patch in Albuquerque, all the crew was buzzing. And I was like, what's up? And they were like, we just heard Vince is coming back to do the Jesse movie. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. And then I forgot. You should, so, you should get a job with Maggie Haberman. Dude, I am dropping. Yo, did you guys hear about this Russia shit? (laughs) So, so I'd like to apologize to you and to everyone for not owning that story. Mm -hmm. But um, so that's what's happening. Before we get into it, I I, I wanted to to actually use the segue that you already gifted us, which is this idea of um, finality and storytelling and building towards things, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I also think actually this is going to play very well for our discussion of the second half of Homecoming. Right, which we probably didn't even tease. One thing that people tell you, uh, I think, as you become an adult or working in the world or in, in any way, I'm not sure what field, but in most fields, I think, where you have to have meetings with people, this certainly applies in Hollywood. The most power you have is the ability to say no. Like, if you're really willing to walk away from something, that gives you power or leverage in the situation. I think that thinking about things creatively, the biggest power that you have and the hardest to use is saying something's over. Right. I, I just think that that is enormously powerful and not always respected as such. That said, they, the Breaking Bad crew has won our trust now with a show that has moved in the other direction. It is surprising on one hand to think that they would once again reopen the stitches and risk altering the legacy of something that is beloved by so many particularly messing with the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have been saying every time we come back to, to Better Call Saul and we scratch our heads and we wonder how this is working and we still can't believe it's working well, they have earned our trust on this. They are able stewards of their own legacy and have earned the right to tell whatever stories they want in this space, right? I, 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 it, it goes against my general belief about storytelling to say that, but I do feel like they've earned it. Oh, every single atom in my body is like, don't do this. Don't, don't do this. You actually gave this specific character a perfect ending. You gave him some sense of escape while also having this ambiguity around what he is escaping and where he is escaping to. Um, his character goes through such, I, I think Jesse goes through an equal, an equally fascinating and in some ways more subtle transformation over the course of Breaking Bad than even Walter, who I think Walter's was a little, you could put it on a fortune cookie, a piece of paper inside of a fortune cookie, the whole, uh, what is it? Mr. Chips turns into Scarface. That's right. But Jesse's is much more. Uh, emotional and 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 I think in some ways complex and it's built it has a lot more loss built into it um but all that being said I I just I cannot deny them this because not that I not, not that I have a choice but because of what better call Saul is 
I just, if they have an idea for this and they think that they have a good idea, I just trust them. And what Better Call Saul is doing with taking, I don't know if you want to call it kind of like a story, a narrative metaphor, but using the idea of the detail and process and complexity of legal work, right? And using that almost as like a template for storytelling where they're so invested in these little meticulous step-by-step processes of this story. So whether it's Saul on a bus going to that town in Louisiana to send all that mail to free fuel, you know, these little Mike investigating the warehouse and looking at every single nook and cranny to find these um, problems with, with the, with the, with the warehouse in, in the, this past season moments like that, which is not that th- those are new kinds of storytelling for, for this, for this group of people. I think, Big Bad had parts of that, but never so explicitly. I have to imagine they have a similarly new way of talking about Jesse and a new way of telling this story. The log line I saw was a man escapes a kidnapping and is on the run, right? And that was before it was it was sort of confirmed that this was going to be the Jesse movie. And then Brian Cranston went on the Dan Patrick show recently, uh, right after the news broke, and said that he hadn't seen a script yet, he hadn't seen a script yet, but then sort of let drop... He was like, it would give closure to some characters from Breaking Bad that didn't have it. Now, that could be in reference specifically and explicitly with, like, only with Jesse. That could also have something to do with Skyler or Walt Jr. or mm-hmm. a couple of other people in there. There is also the overarching, like, they could tie the whole knot together and this could intersect with Saul. I, I think the other thing that, um, the other thing that they've shown they can do, which is not at all as easy as it sounds is to understand how to treat supporting characters as they transition to leads. I think one of the main concerns going into Better Call Saul was, well, this character is a little broad and works so well playing off everyone else. What happens when we just turn the camera on him? And, you know, by creating essentially an entire other character, Jimmy McGill, they solved that problem. Um, they took what, what was the concern that this Saul Goodman is a caricature, admitted it, and then went, ran back the tape to see, to see what he was before. Similarly, I think Jesse really, in my, I mean, Jesse is a, a brilliant character and a brilliant performance by Aaron Paul, of course. But it, for me, it's a, it's a duet with Brian Cranston. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 the character, I couldn't always, I was not nearly as interested in the character when he was split off from, from, from Walter White. But, Thinking through, thinking about it through the Better Call Saul lens, whoever Jesse is after his experience is essentially a different person. And I'm sure that Vince Gilligan will understand that and will embrace it. And running it all the way back to the thing we said about when we were talking about Logan before, to me, this seems like a pretty exciting template for that kind of a story. Mm-hmm. For someone who's been through something, who is changed and scarred irrevocably from it, reckoning with one last thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's exciting. Vince Gilligan has earned the right to tell us a story, and we're excited to see it. I'm also excited to see who Jesse Pinkman's Kim Wexler is, whoever it is. It doesn't right. have to be a, a woman. It doesn't have to be. I mean, I, it can be whoever it is, but they obviously still have characters in their back pocket, you know, and where they, they're able to come up with characters who are as interesting as these people who we know and love from Breaking Bad. Right. I mean, if you look at existing characters as having... Um, square pegs because they are so well defined they don't 
bring in people who are round holes. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? They have this ability, like master craftsmen, to create characters that fold perfectly for dramatic purposes into the pre-existing character. And that's what Kim Wexler is. That's what all the supporting new supporting characters of Better Call Saul are. So it, it's exciting purely from a writing standpoint, honestly, before we even get to what it's going to look like or how it'll be directed, et cetera, et cetera. I do want to pivot from this, before we get into Homecoming, to this kind of cool moment for AMC where they are, as we said just two days ago, throwing out the rule book and saying, we're just going to make stuff with the toys that we have, right? They're going to make movies now because the rules don't matter. The the shape of the, the widget doesn't matter anymore. And it's not a bad idea. And it turns, you know, the, the whole idea before is that you would do, as Community said, six seasons and then a movie. Well, that was always a suspect strategy because TV shows are not movies and going to a cinematic release of a movie, it just changes the stakes. It changes the definition of the property and it often fails. Um, now we're just making more TV episodes, but in a different shape. And I think that's really interesting. And honestly, AMC seems more forward thinking in this than other companies that we often point to as forward thinking. Particularly, I'm thinking about how David Chase is currently making a Sopranos movie that is a prequel. Um, I forget what it's called, the Ghost of New Jersey or something it's called. Maybe we can look it up and, and correct my mistake there. But, uh, you know, it's written, um, it's being cast. He, I assume he's going to direct it as well, and it'll tell the story of Uncle Junior and Tony's dad. It is a theatrical release. Don't you think on some level it would make more sense as a two-hour HBO special? Yeah, I mean, maybe they, it'll they end should up do that with that what they're doing with the Deadwood movie, which they just began filming, apparently. Exactly. And so it also makes me wonder, have the overtures already been made to Matthew Weiner, for example, who I got to say, I, you know, we all know how many episodes of the Romanoffs I've seen, but it does not strike me as something that Amazon would be really super excited to revisit. Just judging by the, the reaction to the show, the but running time. But you think Don Draper in the 80s is, is like, is, is it imminent? Well, I mean... That's a show that did do flashbacks, and they weren't that great to his childhood. I don't know if it's the Don Draper in the '80s show. I he strikes me as someone who, I mean, Weiner also writes novels. He, you know, he wants to make movies. I, I think that his sense of the art that he does is different than Vince Gilligan, who has always approached it much more like, honestly, and I don't even say this pejoratively. I think this is a fair observation of two men that I don't know. One has kind of a blue collar approach and one has a white collar approach to making television and both have succeeded marvelously. But Vince Gilligan has never seemed very precious about it. Like he doesn't mind going back into the mines and having fun seeing what's there. I think that Weiner obsessed over the ending of Mad Men and and tinkered with it and felt like that's my final statement and now I have more things to say. So I don't think he'd necessarily do this. The other thing is that AMC, you know, owns The Walking Dead with its studio. Breaking Bad is through Sony, but they obviously have a very good relationship with AMC. Mad Men was Lionsgate, so I don't know what those conversations would be like between those companies. But uh, all this is prelude. Do you think there's a Mad Men movie in there? What would it be for you? Do I think there's a Mad Men movie? I mean, there's characters like Joan and Peggy that I think are are two characters because of where women were and and what has happened over the last 20, 30 years, 40, 50 years, however, you know, however far you want to project forward. I think that there would always be interest in what happened to them. Uh, you know, obviously, it depends on who you ask. You know, we just did this post this week about who's had the best post-Mad Men career, 
And it's almost hard for me, the hardest person for me to imagine going back would be Moss. You know, it would be hard for me to imagine her going back to Peggy for some reason. I don't think that there will ever be a Mad Men reboot or a Mad, a continuation of that story. I, I really, he seems like the kind of da- guy who would rather die penniless than... I know. Then right. go back and do something over just for a check. I will do, say in terms do, of, you the, know, would, Chris, do you have one? Well, I was just going to say, you could do what I do and consider The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina to be Mad Men canon. <laughs> and that Sally Draper <laughs> just took a turn. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I said this before I wrote it in Grandland. The story that would interest me would be, um, would be Sally Draper growing up, like, in, you know, downtown 81, like, Warhol, Basquiat, like, blending into American Psycho 80s, right? Like, just just a completely different era. Not even saying Kieran Kieran Shipka, like, maybe you just sort of imagine what Mad Men would be like in that era of a very different, you know, very different storytelling, very different city. But there probably won't be and there probably shouldn't be. Uh, I would just say that also, just my last note on the business side of things is that this does seem like a very savvy way to draw interest to single nights, which is a huge challenge in this day and age. You know, usually if you're going to do a This Is Us or whatever, you have to draw attention by promising or teasing huge plot developments. But for the most part, shows, whether they're released week by week or dropping all at once, they are kind of like in their own little vacuum and people are watching them at their own pace. I mean, even as we talk about Homecoming over the course of a week, pretty much everybody I know is like, when are you guys going to talk about the ending? You know, or like, did you get to the end? Did you get to the end? Bodyguard, people watching in a day or two. If something catches fire, it tends to burn really hot. One way for networks, one way for television channels to kind of draw a little bit of attention and and get a little friction going around a night, which I think is important for advertisers, is to say, this is the beginning, the middle, and the end of something is going to happen tonight. I, I don't disagree with you, but I wonder if people, maybe if we have listeners who are more attuned to the business end or advertising could actually let us know their thoughts on this. I, gr- I agree with you conceptually that it's a smart way to get attention and draw eyeballs, um, you know, which is what... And also, I mean, Aaron Paul's is. on Westworld, so it's but, like, how much Aaron Paul can they really book, you know? Well, but, but... Um, the Netflix strategy, for example, that we talked about at length at the time where they surprise debuted a Cloverfield movie after the Super Bowl was such a brilliant move for them because, you know, they stole they stole a night, basically, and, uh, and, and was very splashy. And it made you feel not just that Netflix is something you have to have to watch reruns of Friends, but something you need to have in the same way you need live TV because you never know what's going to drop on the service. But that works for Netflix because Netflix's job is to, you know, appear unmissable. You know, you need to subscribe to have it. And once they have it, once you, once you have it, they have you. That's not how a network works. I mean, a, even this move towards anthology series, I think on some level is very challenging for traditional networks because you can't count on anything, mm-hmm. right? If people don't like second season story that you've had to use all the expense to get new locations, new actors, um, new marketing to reintroduce it, then they're pretty much shit out of luck, right? Because the whole point of the business was always consistency that you could deliver to advertisers. Yeah. So I'm curious, is AMC doing these things because the old rule book isn't working? Are they doing it because they know that owning the Walking Dead extended universe and the Breaking Bad extended universe makes them a good uh, outlet for your dollars when they also become an over-the-top service or if they're bought by someone who has an over-the-top service? Or is there value in 
grabbing people for a Jesse movie and then using the Jesse movie to advertise Lodge 49 and all the other shows you have on your air. I, that's the question I don't understand. Yeah, Maybe we can, they don't know the answer It'll be either. fascinating as this thing develops to kind of see how they're kind of mounting this, whether it's like a, a very special event or is there like, you know, with the Rick Grimes movies and Walking Dead, it sounds like they're going to make several of those. I don't think that, I just don't know where they're going to put Jesse. Like Jesse very well could be managing a Chipotle on Sunset and Vine. You know what I mean? Like I, they, they could go in so many different directions. I assume they're going to keep it in the Albuquerque underworld, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll find out soon enough. And you know what, guys? I'll have boots on the ground there next right. year. If all we can rely well. on you to be the, late, the first to break the news. Uh, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back to discuss the second half of the first season of Homecoming. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV and the newest addition to the easy-to-use home sound system. Sonos Beam rules. So... I, you know, I have like a normal apartment and I, what Sonos Beam does is turns my living room into a home theater, which is kind of a gas coming from an era when if you wanted like home theater sound, you had to pay for a guy to come install everything, rewire your house. It was like this elaborate process, all this stuff with graphic equalizers and balancing the acoustics. Sonos Beam is just like plug and play and it's awesome. It makes sports feel like you're right up against the action. It makes your movies feel like you're in the theater. Beam lets you play everything you love from music and radio to movies, TV, podcasts, and more. It even uses AirPlay to enjoy sound from your iPhone or your iPad on Beam. All with rich sound that fills the room. Enjoy deep bass and detailed stereo separation for music plus crystal clear dialogue for TV and movies. All it takes is one cord to connect Beam to your TV. The Sonos app walks you through setup step by step and it syncs with your existing remote. Or you can get hands-free control with built-in Alexa. That way, you can start a playlist, skip tracks, and pause simply by asking out loud. Go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your smart home sound system. That's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S.com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by DC Universe. If you're a DC fan, you've got to check out the latest live-action series, Titans, available now on DC Universe. Titans premiered on October 12th, and new episodes are available for streaming every Friday through the end of the year. Titans, the first original series to launch on DC Universe, follows a group of young, soon-to-be superheroes, including Dick Grayson, who's moonlighting as the dangerous vigilante Robin, now independent of his longtime partnership with Batman, Rachel Roth, a.k.a. Raven, the mysterious Corey Anders, a.k.a. Starfire, and the lovable Gar Logan as the mischievous Beast Boy. As they get caught up in a conspiracy that could bring hell on Earth, they become not only a surrogate family, but a fearless band of new young heroes. Check out this gritty take on the classic Teen Titans franchise from executive producers at Kiva Goldsman, Jeff Johns, Greg Berlanti, Greg Walker, Sarah Schechner, and John Fawcett. Titans is available only on DC Universe on your favorite devices. Join the ultimate DC membership at DCUniverse.com for only $7.99 a month or get 20% off an annual membership. That's DCUniverse.com. Today's episode of The Watch is sponsored by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Explore the vast number of things you can do with your secure smart home, like doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids, or turndown service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, 
and turns down your lights and thermostat, or even worry-free getaway service, which I love. That allows your system to lock up and set lighting schedules before you go on vacation. It's all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. And do not worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will DIFY do it for you. Just visit ADT.com slash smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Greenwald, we're back. As Kaya just informed us, the Sopranos movie is called The Many Saints of Newark. What? That, that gave us both a little pause of reflection. It's a lovely title. Oh, I was just, have you spent much time in Newark? It sounds like a Gaslight Anthem album, doesn't it? It does. Um, it does. Ha- have I spent much time in Newark? I, didn't didn't you and I drive to Newark together once? No, or I mean, like Trenton? I feel like we've done some Trenton trips. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Where, where's the prequels movie about that? <laughs> that sounds like the beginning of Cameron's I used to get it in Ohio, you know? Yeah, that, that was pretty much our early 2000s listeners. Uh, really just completely the same. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, Let's talk a little bit about the end of Homecoming here. Uh, yet today, okay, so wait. Oh, yeah. Spoilers. Spoilers for the second half of Amazon's Homecoming. Sorry to our producer, Kaya, who has not cut up. I know. You're burnt. Um, <laughs> You're burnt, Kaya. <laughs> but I did have just a couple notes because, as everyone knows, I am recording this podcast from S-Mail Corp. I'm in the belly of the beast. I have a giant I, plate my, of pineapple in front of me. My opinions are completely uh, suspect. Um, I get it. I did want to say that Sam's note to me about our podcast about his show was that uh, he wanted me to correct you that it's Stefan James. Okay. Thanks. And otherwise I told him that I found your slavish devotion to his show unseemly (laughs) and um, that you were laying it on a bit thick and he disagreed. So that that's where we're at. (laughs) I got more, man. I got a whole new bag. (laughs) Oh Jesus. All right. All right. Here we go. Um, why don't you go first this time? I feel like I gave my, my, my opening speech. We can go a little bit more ping-pong back and forth this time. I don't want to turn it into the monologue hour. No, I look, I'm perfectly happy to, 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 to do the monologue hour. I, I also, you know, my takeaway from the second half of, of the first season is that this Geist company, <laughs> whew, I feel like they're Geist. not on the up and up. Yeah. I also wonder... And I mean this sincerely because, you know, the finale, season finale suggests, you know, that we all know there's a second season coming. Um, the, sec- the, the, the finale suggests that we are going to get more into the Geist Corporation. And my main question is, does this mean that Homecoming is set in the 30 Rock expanded universe and that Rip Torn's Don Geist character is somehow a wayward scion of this company? That's right. Do you think that's possible? I don't know. I, I you know... All I could hope for is that Hong Chao is like a major part of the second season because she's just in that one scene that she really gets to let it rock with Bobby. It's like with Bobby Cannavale, she just that that look she gives him. She's like, we're not talking about her. You know, it's such a great moment. Let's talk Hong Chao. I'm a huge fan. I don't know how much of, she's in the second season. I do know that from being inside of here. And I, for one, am very excited about that, too. I, I think she's a tremendously interesting uh, actor, I thought she was just. I think. I think we talked about this. I think she was so great in what may have been the best episode of Forever, the Fred Armisen, Maya Rudolph 
uh, show on Amazon that I like quite a bit. I'm glad that you said that, and, that you're just dropping season two spoilers already. <laughs> like, I know that in like three months, it's going to be like a dusty Albuquerque setting for you. And I'm going to be like, how's it going? And like Cranston's going to be walking by you in full Walt- <laughs> Walter White regalia. And you're going to be like, nah, nothing much. Just had, a, <laughs> just, had some Christmas just, chilies. Just eating some, eating some green chili. Yeah. Um, the, the reason... I wanted to, the reason I, I'm, I'm happy about that news is because for all of the enormous positives that we've been bestowing upon Homecoming, I really think Hong Chao brings something, her, her, the t- a type of performance that actually is otherwise mostly absent from the show, which is interesting because, you know, in, in all the pieces written about it, I think Alison Herman's piece about Sam and everything referred to him as a paranoia auteur, mm-hmm. putting this film, you know, firmly in the, tradi- putting this series firmly in the tradition of films from the 70s, Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, etc. Yeah, and Adam Neyman wrote a, a piece that kind of took frame by frame different scenes and, and talked about what Sam was doing in terms of creating tension or isolation. And a bunch of other things. I, I highly recommend both pieces. Right, and I think that um, Hong Chao's performance is unique uh, on this show in a surprising way because she is just so jittery and nervy and discomforting naturally you know she's not putting on anything this isn't and again i actually really liked his performance but one of the but but jeremy allen white's performance as schreier you know that's a type of character on these shows you know he's the jittery paranoid guy um and he played it very broadly as he should to make an impact in his limited screen time as a guest star but hong chow is in the background just slowly vibrating to freak everybody out and i love that i love that um baseline and I'm excited to have that brought to the fore. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's interesting to think about this in terms of where it's going because it it honestly, throughout the entire run of the first season, I was blissfully as if I was taking some sort of medication that was deleting that part of my brain, just blissfully kind of uncaring about where it was going or what what the second season might do. Would we meet Mr. Geist? What happened to Ron? Is he Is he still seasoning that chicken in his kitchen? You know, all these things. <laughs> Uh, you know, we just did a podcast. We just did a rewatchables episode uh, about all the president's men for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Uh, it has nothing to do with what's going on in the news. And one of the things that struck me when I was rewatching all the president's men, and I'm sure at this point everybody's sick of hearing the '70s paranoia cinema comparisons, but it was the ending, which Sean talked about, Fantasy talked about a lot on the rewatchables, was how that that movie ends and how you, in your mind, you might even remember it ending two or three times before it actually fit, f- wraps up. And I felt like there there was a bit of homage, intentionally or not, in the way that the season kind of wrapped up. It was much more of a coda than it was a cliffhanger, you know? Um, and it was kind of investigating what happens as people return to memories and these memories start to, like, come back to them a little bit or whether or not that's a good thing to remember at all. At all. You know, you come out of this catatonic state and uh, you are sort of maybe robbed of something, robbed of this trauma that creates the tapestry of who you are, but maybe it's better not to. And then I, obviously there's some ambiguity at the end with the fork suggesting that Stefan is actually, the, the Cruz character is actually aware of who he's talking to. Um, I think we could talk a little bit about episode eight, which I think is actually a masterpiece. And it's, you know, oftentimes with shots in shows, we're talking about like a true detective tracking shot or a, piece of virtuistic Steven Soderbergh uh, camera work in the Nick or something. And Sam himself has done these sort of long wonders and Mr. Robot. 
But the the switch of the aspect ratio uh, in eight is fucking. That's a highlight reel, man. It, it's really cool, and it, it's it's really cool to consider um, every aspect of um, filmmaking as part of the storytelling. You know, it's nice that it's that it was actually, and I didn't expect this. I didn't know where things were going, but the idea that the aspect ratio was telling us something about our character's mental state, not just as a neat way to differentiate the time periods. Because again, I I never listened to the podcast, but I understood. But I've come to understand that that sound effect was the way that they they jolted between the t- the, the time periods on the audibly. So it, it, I thought that it was just a visual flourish to accentuate that, and I really appreciated that it was that it was more than that. The thing that I'm interested in is where you fell after watching all the episodes which by the way i mean what a what a, what a delight to watch an entire season in a week and then be able to chat about it thank you running times <laughs> um where did you fall on the central relationship well actually maybe that's the question itself i was about to refer to heidi and Cruz as the central relationship of the show. And mm-hmm. I was curious where you fell on what that relationship was, because one of the things that I, I don't want to say struggled with because it did not affect my enjoyment of the show, but I am not sure where I am with it, which is, is the show asking us to believe that on some level they, they are in love, that this is a romantic connection, or is it merely like any port in a storm for people who are being buffeted on all sides by, by lunacy? And even as I'm asking you the question, I might want to reframe it because I do think the ambiguity of that relationship has meant that the actual central relationship of the show is with Sam's camera and us, the viewer. Honestly, I think that is the dynamic relationship that carries us through all 10 episodes. What a fascinating question. I think that that it calls as soon as you said that I started thinking about Maniac, you know, which explicitly addresses the nature of their relationship in the final episode of, of that show. And I don't want to give it away, but... Emma Stone and Jonah Hill actually have a conversation about like what is the nature of this relationship? What are why are you doing this for me? Uh, what does it mean? Um, obviously, Cruz and Heidi don't have that conversation in in Homecoming. It didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me like is she doing this because she's in love with him? Is she driving across the country to find him because she's in love with him? I think that she goes to. Uh, his mother's house and there's that scene, a very good scene. Uh, and she says, you know, I, I understand what you did, but I don't forgive you. And Julia Roberts says, I don't want you to. And that's a fantastic moment. I do think she needs forgiveness and she needs closure. I think that that's how she rebuilds her, the missing part of her mind, essentially. She needs to go back to that. There's a utopian element to where they're going. Um, there's like this kind of off the grid, we're looking for gold. There's a kind of fantastical, mythical search happening there and maybe she finds it maybe she strikes gold by finding him and seeing that he's he's doing well that he's building this deck that he's doing everything that he ever dreamed of doing but it didn't it it was i was not pressed by whether or not they were in love but i wonder whether or not the lack of clarity does make sam's camera and the obsession that i seem to have over the the filming the the filmmaking behind this show and the i think a lot of people have responded to the music and using all these 70 scores in it i think that's a really astute way of looking at it well i i would take it a step further and i think that the show itself in the text of the show has helped us answer that question right because the key conversation between heidi and walter is about this road trip she says she's never gone on one and he talks about what it could be like, uh, what it would be like to go on it with another person. 
And would that other person ultimately become as uninteresting as the landscape, right? There's this idea of like, would we run out of things to talk about? I don't have the, certainly I don't have the dialogue in front of me, but that's how I remember the scene. Um, but this idea is that maybe they'll go on this trip together. And I think the, the important thing is neither of them ever go on that trip with someone else. They both go on that trip completely alone. Uh, we, on the other hand, as the viewers, go on this trip with 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 Sam and with the camera and and with the story that 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 Micah and Eli wrote. So we get to go on a trip and we are not alone, even though, of course, you know, sometimes we are on our couch alone or whatever, wherever we watch shows um, as it as it happens. And I think somewhere in that observation is the answer to to the question that I that I've had after watching it, which is, why did I enjoy it so much if I didn't understand fully the emotional relationship between the characters? And it's because I was on a ride mm-hmm. with good company. Do you think that that line that that Colin says to the to the group of uh, military and DOD and big pharma people when he's giving that presentation where he's he puts up that quote and he says, for the first time, I'm actually looking forward to things? Mm-hmm. Did, is he right? Did, that, did, did the medication actually work? I mean, does it actually, in a weird way, bring these two people together and free them up from their pasts? It's a good question. I mean, I think that... I mean, aside from, the, obviously, the incredibly nefarious nature of, of what they're doing and the culpability, and, like, obviously, like, I think that there are even greater applications. In, in, in a lot of ways, this, this, this show does go hand-in-hand hand with Maniac in terms of, like, the use of, of medication... Uh, and and farm and pharmacological sort of advances to to cure us, you know. Well, I think all these shows, all these sort of like medicating shows, all these hospital shows, um, trippy like shows, New Amsterdam? homecoming, yeah, New Amsterdam, homecoming, Legion, Maniac are really about what are we doing here? What are we doing when we can do anything? What is it? and and I think it's also always been a meta commentary on what are we doing when we can do anything on television now when there are no guardrails anymore and there are no budgetary constraints. And that to me, actually, I'm glad you asked that. That to me is Homecoming's most interesting thematic question because the idea of someone who had a, like Walter, who had a rich and varied mind full of memories, full of conflicting emotions um, and memories could be stripped down to the core of I don't mind going back to war because it'll just take, it'll feel like it's a day. It'll feel like it just takes a day. Right. Well, because that medication is probably compressing memory so that that's what it feels like. Yeah. Right. But also his happy place with an unknown memory. We don't fully understand. He doesn't seem to recognize Heidi. We're not sure. He seems to suddenly take great satisfaction in hammering nails into a deck. Now there are people who I admire in the world who are like, I like to garden and that makes me happy. And I, I, well, I, I probably couldn't keep a garden alive anyway, but the idea of letting go of everything else from, you know, whether it's Twitter alerts on my phone to watching TV shows and talking about them with you for an hour to just be purely present sounds terrifying to me. Right. But that's the goal of all of these, <laughs> but like, that's the goal of meditation or yoga or, or whatever. these. So things what you're are, saying is you're is, worried that Walter stops subscribing to the watch. Exactly, though. I mean, I think that's the interesting question here, which is, how do we medicate ourselves? Is, is, you know, Instagram stories any different than this Geist pineapple drug? Um, 
but is he happier? Right. And I, and I think that that's the interesting question for me. And there are times when that question rang out loudly, you know, past the, the, the incredibly clever and engaging, um, seventies homages. And there are times when that emotional question was more muted and again, not in an unpleasant way, but it, it wasn't winning out over the style. It's not altogether different than what Lydia does with Colin, what his wife does, where she's just like, rather than tell me what you're, what's bothering you and what you've done to me, essentially, put it in this box and let's move forward. And it th- that doesn't come off as, uh, I, it seems like it's coming off almost as a, an assertion of power on her part, where she's like, I'm almost going to rob you of this, you, you know, your, your your sensitive vulnerability here, and we're just going to continue to be this power couple because we have an it's idea also- of... It, it's also like sharks, right? Sharks yeah. only move forward yeah, or yeah. they die. And, and I think... You're a killer. Hong, yeah, Hong that's Chow's, what she says Hong Chow's character says you're a killer. Um, it's playing... You know, we've spent two podcasts prior to this one talking, praising the runtime of Homecoming. You know, the longest episode is 37 minutes. The shortest is 24, I believe. Um, all of these things that we are now unearthing and talking about, frankly, there isn't room in that runtime to explicitly state or engage with a lot of them. So I, it, it's inter- it, it's, it, this conversation we're having is really interesting to me because it, it speaks to what we expect out of prestige TV now, which, you know, traditionally for the last 10 years actually has been the room and space to marinate on these bigger ideas. And on the best shows, it's done subtly, um, you know, and on the worst shows that generally get canceled or are Westworld, it's done very explicitly. <laughs> um, is <laughs> I, I don't there is no answer here like which which version is better like can we have this fun ride and then once we finished it take a moment and pull over you know pull our prius over or whatever colin's rental car was and chat about it there's um, just enough there there with more, this. there's just i right. think that there's there's a version of this show that's uh whether it's the performances are pitched at a different frequency or there's a couple of other i mean maybe there's a couple more special effects things if it's not handled with care it feels like a coming attraction for itself. It feels like a trailer for itself. I know that as somebody who watches way too much TV at this point, I am so allergic to unnecessary uh, buildup to things and the kind of long uh, putting one brick on top of another that happens in TV shows where I I am so, uh, I, I mean, whether it's ADD or not, I'm so desperate for things to move along at a quicker pace that to be able to have a conversation like the kind that we're having about whether or not, with, with all the nuances about these characters and the thematic sort of richness that's coming off of this show, with a show that's only like, it's sometimes it's like on average about 30 minutes long, I think is actually quite an achievement. You know, I mean, there are lots of shows that are an hour and six minutes routinely that we don't talk about, you know? Yeah, well, one thing about the show that makes it, and, and people have asked why with our connection to Sam or why my direct connection, you know, working across an office from him at the moment, why we're talking about it. First of all, it, it is what it, it's the genre we like to talk about um, and we're interested in. But as this conversation proves, this is a show that at this moment, we can't have a conversation about it without that's detangled from the state of television and the state of storytelling on television, what we expect and what what surprises us. And that's been baked into everything we've said about it from when we found out it was a half hour, you know, or that it was adapted from a podcast or that it was on Amazon with Julia Roberts in a two season commitment. So it's on top of everything else, this show is the show to talk about, I think, and to engage with at the moment, if you're interested in the business 
and the business of storytelling on TV as a whole. Um, there's, there's, despite its short running time, there is a lot there and there's a lot past there, um, to consider when talking about it. And, and frankly, I would love to know, we don't have time to do this and we're not going to do this, but readers feel free to call us on it in five years or whatever. Like, this is the sort of thing that I would love to revisit free of this context to see yeah, right. how we consider it then. Um, with does a rewatch, it, does or it even, play later? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, so I'll, I'll I'll just call you again in like three or four years, and we'll rewatch Homecoming. And are we done until then? Yeah, because yeah. I, I, should get I mean, back. I I have to, you know, I I just got to get ready for this Cassie and Andor show. So I'm not I'm gonna be kind of busy. That's fine. I'm gonna screw on my press hat and just <laughs> camp out in the desert. I think, I, guys, I'm onto a hot story. Okay, so we have uh, a week before Thanksgiving, Greenwald. Uh, I we actually it sounds like we're gonna have Micah and Eli, the uh, creators of the Homecoming podcast and writers on the show, come by next week at some point. I'm also right. gonna be talking to Eric Newman, the showrunner of Narcos, next week. That'll come out, I think, on Thursday. Kaya, am I right? That's correct. That's correct. We also have a very cool interview we're conducting next week. Don't pretend Kaya wasn't just listening to Shea Serrano's new podcast. Like, <laughs> she's, we all know she does not she's listen like, to the watch. Oh, you guys are still talking. Uh, <laughs> so we have a bunch of stuff happening. But Greenwald, is there another thing you want people to start watching soon? I mean, we have the, everything that I'm excited about starts at the end of next week, where it's Little Drummer Girl, Narcos, and Escape from Damora. I think that those are the things to throw up on the watch list, and... I will consider them homework as well, and I look forward to talking about them with you on a podcast in three or four years. Okay, Betty. (laughs) (laughs) I'll talk to you soon. Just have a great day, Baranskis. Really, really, you've earned it. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Navy Federal with three times the points on travel and two times the points on all other purchases. The flagship rewards card makes little excursions feel like the trip of a lifetime. Earn rewards whether it's a weekend getaway, a short road trip, or even your daily commute. Redeem points for cash or travel and enjoy access to Navy Federal's online shopping center where you can earn extra rewards at your favorite retailers. Check out NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply now. Message rates and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV. Beam lets you play everything you love from music and radio to TV, movies, podcasts, and more, all with rich sound that fills the room. It's super simple to set up, but if you don't even want to bother, Sonos will send someone to do it for you. That's right. If you live in any major metropolitan area, up and running will have a Sonos expert deliver and set up your system absolutely free. I love this system. I love this setup. I love the fact that they came to my crib and just did it for me. And now I have a home theater, but you wouldn't even know it if you looked at my television. It's not wires all over the place. I don't have like some crazy equilibrium shattering speaker system. It's just simple, compact, and it works with all of my devices. Just order the Sonos Beam from Sonos.com and select up and running at checkout if you qualify. 